0: Into Music is a podcast from KMUW about musicians and the fellow artists, teachers, and tastemakers who've inspired them. He became the mentor in his later years that he wasn't able to be to me in my early years. That's Into Music every Thursday, starting in February. You'll find it at KMUW.org, your KMUW app, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello?
1: I am Andres N. Ordrica. I'm a writer and poet and the author of the novel, How We Name the Stars.
0: Poet Andres N. Ordrica describes his debut novel, How We Named the Stars, as a love story steeped in loss. It follows Daniel and his relationship with Sam, told retrospectively after Sam's death. But it also looks at the death of Daniel's uncle, his namesake, and how that loss has affected his family his entire life. I recently spoke with Andres N. And Ordrica about writing from the perspective of multiple queer characters, the importance of seeing yourself reflected in literature, and more. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Andres and Ordrica. So this is your debut novel. Could you give our listeners a brief description of it?
1: I like to say that it is a love story that is very much steeped in loss. And so um, this is not sort of giving away the ending by no means. Um, By page three, you know that the lover of the narrator and the protagonist Daniel is dead. Uh, the, The opening chapter literally starts with the phrase, Sam's dead. But really, I feel like it's a a coming-of-age story that is very much about sort of dealing with two very simple uh, but weighty rites of passage that all humans go through, and that is first love and first loss. And so it is Daniel's story and his sort of reckoning with these two very big, emotional, transitory moments in his life. And they happen to be sort of foisted upon him by this single person, by his introduction to his roommate, Sam, during his first year at a university on the East Coast of the United States.
0: You know, as you mentioned, it's not a spoiler to say that one of your characters, Sam, dies. We learn it from the first line of the actual book, not the prologue, but the book. But, you know, what the reader does not know for a couple of hundred pages is when Sam dies in relation to the story. I mean, what does that allow you to do as a writer to keep the reader in the dark? We don't know if Sam and Daniel haven't spoken for 10 days or 10 years.
1: Oh, that's such a beautiful question. I think for me, it was more about allowing kind of that softness and that slow unfurling almost slow burn of a love story to kind of take front and center and so by allowing the readers from the get-go to know that it's not going to be sort of a happy ending in the way i think traditionally for a love story or or you know some people are kind of positioning it as a romance novel and i think it, it might be it might not be but you know that sam and daniel are not going to end up together by virtue of Sam being dead but by kind of allowing that to just be dealt with immediately and then show that kind of blossoming burgeoning relationship with two men who are both in the closet at the start and one that being Daniel who is the narrator and it's told in the second person so the majority of the novel is spoken or written to Sam or Sam's sort of ghost, I feel like it allows Daniel the ability to kind of reflect because I think as a part of his mourning and sort of I dealt with a a, a loss at a similar age for the character of Daniel. And I think for me, as a means of processing that loss, I kind of entered a really reflective kind of, hindsight stage of my life of trying to kind of look back at things and try to make sense of things and so for me it was just about giving daniel that sort of duty of care to make sense of yes it is framed within the loss of sam but it is their love story so it's allowing the love to be the kind of epicenter of the story And for me, sort of waiting, yeah, those hundred or so pages to make concrete to the reader how and when it happened wasn't a means of sort of tricking or trying to be sort of mischievous or, you know, be like the puppeteer with sort of the strings on the go. It was more about allowing, yeah, that love to kind of be the through line. You
0: know, there's another death in the book. Daniel's uncle, his namesake, dies at a very young age. And and one of the lines in the book that stayed with me is the idea that we are never prepared to say goodbye to a life unlived. Talk to me about this.
1: Yes, again, it was me kind of dealing with what it was to be 19 and be confronted with such a grave personal loss that was beyond family. Um, so not sort of, you know, a, a grandparent or someone dying in older age. And so it, for me, it was a friend, but I wanted to kind of explore what loss looked at, at in different ways. And so having uh, uncle Daniel, or as Daniel refers to him in Spanish, Theo Daniel have passed away at a similar age. I think for me, I wanted to show the reader, but also I wanted to kind of as a character, I wanted Daniel to be in a position where he wasn't allowed to be totally consumed by his own personal loss. Because at the point that we really learn about his uncle, he's starting to kind of really contend with the fact that for all of his life. So the full 19 years of his life, both his mother and his grandparents have been sort of mourning this person he never got to meet. And so I feel for me, it was a kind of means of allowing these two deaths to kind of be in communion. And, And I think we see that as the novel goes on in part two when he's in Mexico, and Daniel kind of really takes it on upon himself to help move his family forward. And I think that idea of a life unlived And him kind of being 19 and reckoning with it, I think is sort of the driving force that takes us to the end where Daniel ultimately, you know, makes that decision that he has to find a means to move on in life. And and part of that is to live on behalf of these two people, one whom he's never met and happens to be related to, and the other who was, you know, the first love of his life, but that they both died in sort of the... The spring of their being.
0: You know, we learn the story, and please correct me if I misunderstood this. We learn the story through three perspectives or voices. The prologue is Sam, Daniel, and at the beginning of each chapter, Daniel, the uncle or the namesake, through his journal. And maybe this is a question about your your writing process or craft. So talk to me about, you know, assuming these three perspectives in your writing. Did you like begin with the uncle's journal or with Daniel's or how did you write these? How did they come about?
1: Yes. Okay. Brilliant question. So Daniel was always going to be the main narrator and, 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 every instance or redraft that was just has been uh, a continuous sort of mainstay. There was a version of the book where I was going to have the uncle be very present. Uh, I wanted it to work in a way that those narrations were happening concurrently and so it was kind of like chunked up chapters of Daniel and then his uncle and back and forth until ultimately it was just going to end with only Daniel's voice. But it was becoming a bit too unwieldy and it just it wasn't serving what was at the heart of the story and so i knew i wanted the uncle to be a presence and even in that kind of first imagination it was always going to be that part two was just going to be daniel in mexico and that he was going to um happen upon these diaries that that the family had kept on to. And so I had enough of the backstory of the uncle in this sort of previous iteration that there was enough to kind of make him a presence in in the actual novel. And I have to sort of hold my hands up. It was my brilliant editor, Carl Clark, who came up with the idea of this more epistolary approach of having the diary entries, which I was so grateful for, because obviously it meant all of that work that went into an earlier version was not wasted. But then, yeah, it was the final version where I think I was working with my agent and my editor at Tin House, and I think we kind of realized that to throw the reader in straight into loss, and as you sort of alluded to, beyond the diary entries that open every chapter, the first line literally of chapter one is Sam is dead, that that would be too much, and, I, and it, wouldn't, it wasn't where I wanted the novel to start. And so the prologue was a means of giving a bit of breathing room. And when that decision sort of came to write a prologue, I just knew it had to be from Sam because to have a novel of 300 something pages be told in such a unique way in that second person narrative style, I felt like the reader deserved to hear Sam's version, even if it's a very small two and a half pages. But what I hope is that it really rings true to the spirit of that character. And, and what I hope the reader ends up enjoying is that we do find out that that chapter is retold again through Daniel's perspective. So we see the exact scene play out, but in Daniel's kind of memory of it. But yeah, I think You know, for a novel that is so steeped in loss, it would have been kind of an injustice to have the two men who ultimately are the ones that pass away to not feature in some way. And so I think for me, having those different narrative presence was just a means of kind of making sure it wasn't just Daniel's story, because ultimately it's not Daniel's story. He's taken it upon himself to write the story, but it is, it ultimately it it, it is anchored in, in these losses of both his uncle and of Sam.
0: You know, young, I I call him young Daniel because there are two Daniels, Mm. but young Daniel is, is writing in his journal. That's what we are reading is, is his journal entry. And, you know, some of it is in, in real time. And some of it is through recollection. Uh, We know he's speaking or writing to Sam, you know, about their past and about his present does memory affect the story at all? Does it open the door to unreliability? Possibly. Yeah, and I
1: think also in terms of dealing with loss, especially a loss of someone that is important to us, I think we often we evangelize them. You know, we we make them a bigger thing than they actually were or maybe as a means of sort of dealing with our own pain, we try to forgive them. And also this can happen in the reverse, you know, that we actually make the ugliest parts of themselves more pronounced than they probably were. So I definitely agree with that. I think, yes, we do have moments where Daniel is almost like, if you will, checking in with Sam and sort of saying, this is where I am right now, and then goes back into the story. But I think, yeah, I think that's totally a fair thing. You know, uh, we're only getting it told through Daniel's perspective, and we are relying on his sort of memories of things. I will say in defense of young Daniel, I do think he kind of takes almost like a, a kind of journalistic honor code, if you will, that he's convinced that he's doing the best he can to tell the story as it was. And I think that care and that earnestness and that love is evident through him the character and not necessarily him the narrator but I do appreciate that yes of course you know he's going to misremember things and and we don't know all of Sam's account and I think that comes becomes really important when we kind of get to the end of his time at Ithaca, where Daniel is kind of feeling the burn of of Sam pulling away. But we don't actually know what was going on in Sam's head. We only get what Daniel thinks being in a similar position of someone who is still very much afraid of leaving the closet. So he kind of, he asserts that perhaps it was Sam just not ready and that's why he pulled back because they had just, you know, the friendship had moved too far into intimacy. But who's to say that that was the actual reason? Again, we're sort of relying on Daniel's take.
0: You wrote in a note to the reader at the end of the novel that this is not a memoir, um, but it does lean on some truths that have shaped your story. And so I want to ask a little bit about, you know, Daniel, you know, he's, he's an English major, he's wanting to be a writer, he reads a lot. And when he's reading The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros, he writes, reading her words, it dawned on me that I had never read a character that looked like me. How strange to love books so much and only find myself in one at 19. Did you have a similar experience?
1: Yes. Oh, and thank you. I just love when people do such close reading. It just feels really like a gift. Yes. So what will probably boggle people's minds because I talk about Sandra Cisneros so much uh, as a writer that I look up to. I did not first read Cisneros until I was 23 and I was working for the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center in San Antonio. They have a, a, an amazing collection of, of uh, Mexican, Mexican American, and Latinx writers. And, and recently, the bookshop, I think in 2020, uh, had a second life. But anyway, it was whilst working there that I happened upon Cisneros. And, you know, in my undergraduate, You know, I'll be honest with you, I had one class in multicultural American literature that I took my senior year of college. Before then, I was reading what was canonical. I was taking classes in, you know, the English Restoration or, you know, uh, multiple courses on Shakespeare and Victorian literature. All things that I love. Like, I will be the first to say I love Charles Dickens. I think he's one of the most amazing writers. I love the Bronte sisters. You know, I love so much irish and british uh, literature and and that has been sort of foundational into driving my own love of writing but in terms of seeing uh of really learning about the great and varied voices that come from sort of writers of color or from the global south that was not something i learned until after university and it was through booksellers, it was through other writers, it was through community organizers and activists compiling reading lists and trying to decolonize sort of this, what is still my love. I'm so glad I did an English Lit undergrad, but yes, that was very much me putting myself on the page, if you will, and kind of trying to, yeah, to say something because you know, I hope that listeners can hear it in the fervor in my voice. I love reading. I love literature. And I think Daniel is a character that does, too. But it's a very special moment for him to read Cisneros work for the first time. And be like, oh, my God, like these references that that's what I see when I'm at home, that that language, that kind of code switching between English and Spanish is my own experience. And and just what a beautiful thing to happen upon that at any stage in life.
0: You know, on your website, you say everyone deserves to hear their name, how it's meant to be said. And that's how I listened and listened and listened and practiced, and I'm still awful. But I said her name wrong. How should I say it?
1: (laughs) I would say Sandra Cisneros.
0: Sandra Cisneros. See, I'm bad at the R's too. Sandra Cisneros. Cisneros.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, and yes, and it is a tough, especially if you struggle with your R's. Because Obviously, <laughs> there are two R's in, in there. Um, and in your name, too. But,
0: yeah. <laughs> so I should say The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. Does that sound all right? Yes. Okay, all right. That
1: sounds great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so Daniel has always wanted to be a writer, but... Um, But when he began journaling the story, that's when he began to think of writing not as a way of creating new worlds, but instead of preserving the present and honoring the past. And he said something about how it was his attempt to make sense of loss and to halt their story from being lost to time. And then again, in that note that you wrote to the reader, you talk about having having the language to make sense of death and the fear of the unknown. And you mentioned the influence of Beckett's Waiting for Godot. And a few lines of that play are included in the epigraph. Can you talk to me about this influence?
1: Yes. So I, I, um, I did. I double majored in my undergrad. I did a degree in English and drama. And my love of writing came through the theater. I was very fortunate that I had in my high school. Our arts program was very well funded. Um, shout out to the most amazing drama teacher that ever existed, Miss Vicki Briscoe. And Miss Briscoe, she was the first person I think that really took me seriously as a writer and. In my junior year of high school, she kind of gave me the tools to write my first 10-minute play. And that was really the genesis of my love of writing and, and, and kind of took me down a path through theater. And so in my undergrad, when I did a course on the theater of the absurd, by stroke of luck, my professor who taught that class, Claire Gleitman, was a huge Beckett fan. And as I was reading his work, it just, it was so profound to me because all of his plays, the premises of them are very simple. It's often characters literally stuck in these absurd situations. So thinking of happy days and being stuck on a hill and a pile of rubble and and just sort of, Kind of putting these characters in these situations, but then confronting these very existential issues and, and waiting for Godot, we have these two characters who are, are are primarily the only ones on stage, who are just waiting for this being that we don't really know who it is. Like, does it represent God? Is Godot oh God? You know, and I, and I think Bakke is very intentional and in not really allowing us a kind of concrete answer. But I think what takes place in that play so brilliantly are these two characters that are then so reliant on each other to get through this kind of absurd period of waiting and to make sense of life and what i love about it is often in their dialogue you know we have vladimir and estragon kind of reverting to memory they talk about these periods of their lives that we never see and we don't know if they actually happened or not but they say just such beautiful eloquent things and so the epigraph is one of my favorite 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 not even just Beckett like I think quotes to ever exist I think it's just so stunning how they talk about you know, the maps of the Holy Land that they saw painted in the Bible and that they wanted to go to. And I really, I do talk about it in my notes to the readers. I've always done a queer reading of Vladimir and Estragon. I think they are in love. I think it is a love story, but that's neither here nor there. But for me, yes, Beckett was just such an important, I played an important role in me dealing with these two characters that are going through this loss, even though we don't have Sam there. But in moments when Daniel is in Mexico, it kind of, I don't want to say it veers into magical realism because I think that, again, is opening up a can of worms. We know that those scenes, that this didn't happen, that this is Daniel kind of really deep in mourning, that he starts imagining Sam. But a lot of the dialogue that takes place, this imagined dialogue with Sam's ghost, is very much inspired by the opening of act two in Waiting for Godot, where at this point, I feel like Vladimir and Estragon are really kind of just, they're at their wit's end with waiting. And they kind of start being very much obsessive about this idea of death and loss and happiness. And and we have them, you know, asking each other over and over again, I, I would be misquoting if I remember who asks whom. But um, let's just say it's Estragon asking Vladimir and needing to know like, was Vladimir happy like in these past memories? And he keeps asking again, were you happy? Tell me you're happy. And he's like feeding the lines to him. And so for me, because of just this profound sense of waiting for Gatto being such an amazing, almost metaphor for like confronting our own demise. It just, it, it was like an obvious kind of, bit to riff off in the play to sort of say, you know what, I'm going to really sort of be in communion with that sequence of dialogue and have it be how Daniel speaks to Sam. And so we see that Sam is being asked over and over again by Daniel, tell me you're happy, tell me you're happy. And he won't, he refuses. And I think it really is just supposed to be symbolic of how lonely loss can be when you're the one left behind, especially that age and just how ultimately absurd it is for a 19 year old to kind of reckon with, they will never see this person again. This is it. And then you're kind of left with all of the trauma of, I should have reached out, even though I was mad at him, I should have been the one to call. And, and that is going to be something that haunts Daniel for a long time. And so for me, kind of being in communion with the theater of the absurd just felt like, yeah, it made sense.
0: You just mentioned that the queer reading of Waiting for a Godot was neither here nor there. And that reminds me of something I saw on your website. Talk to me about what it means to be from neither here nor there.
1: Yes. So I love this phrase that's often used within... The Mexican diaspora, but I would say even the larger sort of Latinx diaspora, anyone who's part of a diasporic community or an immigrant background to be from neither here nor there. And so in Spanish, it's ni de aquí ni de allá. And It has been such a mainstay in my writing across prose and poetry and something that I obsess over. And for me, I think it kind of bleeds into many different facets of life. But first and foremost, sort of for my own kind of sense of self and and belonging to a country or to a place or to a community is very interesting when you're born in the United States into an immigrant family, you know, um, my parents were not immigrants. They were first generation American, but all four of my grandparents came from Mexico to the U.S. in the 1960s. And so growing up, you know, uh, my family was very proud to be Mexican, to be of Mexican heritage. You know, we spoke both English and Spanish at home. You know, I grew up primarily on sort of the food and music of my culture, but I also knew that I was American and, you know, I I went to the American school system, but there were sort of ugly points in life where you're kind of being confronted with maybe you're not American and and being called you know derogatory terms that I won't say during this interview and kind of from a very young age having to kind of reconcile with like what am I then this kind of sort of because I'm not Mexican you know my Spanish is not good enough like if you pop me over there I don't think I'd survive and I don't feel like this Especially at a young age, you know, I didn't feel like this deep rootedness in Mexico and my father, you know, served in the United States Air Force. So I thought, you know, we are an American family. And then as I got older and I kind of went through my own queer awakening it kind of really started to take on all these other layers of like what is it to be a man and if you're a queer man you know like is it the same kind of masculinity or you kind of left in this liminal stage and and even the idea of the closet and, and before you totally Come out, whatever that actually might mean. It is a form of being neither here nor there, because you know you're leaving behind this kind of falsehood that you might be straight or totally straight. Um, So yeah, I think this sort of this neither here nor there is just a brilliant kind of positionality. Um, And for me, I think it's something that continuously crops up in my writing, and I think for the character of Daniel, it, it, it's something that I wanted to really kind of be evocative, and I, and I do think it is evocative, and so I even kind of probably in a in a as in a in a sort of aim for metaphor, we do have him at an airport which often feels like a place of neither here nor there before we see him in Mexico and this is where he kind of finds out about Sam wanting to kind of end the friendship and this is in the aftermath of their love story before Sam passes away and I think that was just a really brilliant way to also kind of further drive that point of being neither here nor there and and it's Daniel kind of stuck in these places and needing to really determine which way is the right way or does there have to be a right way you know what if maybe it ultimately is about him finding a different option.
0: You are a published poet but this is your debut novel. What was the transition like into writing this your first novel?
1: Um, I would say, you know, novel writing is such an unwieldy beast. For me, (laughs) the poetry collection came about over many years, and I feel like this is true for many poets or friends of mine who are poets, where, you know, unless you're working on a very specific project where maybe you're writing a, a sequence of poems in one sort of burst, more often than not, you know, you're kind of amassing poems and you're working towards that first collection. And then you kind of, you know, you write hundreds upon hundreds, and then you try to cobble it together thematically. And, and, and you know, you try to construct from these very divergent things or, or, or poems, ultimately. But, you know, as the poet, more often than not, you find your themes and it starts to make sense. Whereas with the novel, you're starting from nothing, often just an idea. And I think that kind of the, the viewpoint you have to have is just so much bigger. And that's not to say in any way that sort of novel writing is more prestigious or of more value than poetry. But I think for me, it was, yeah, having to wrangle with, what did I do earlier? Does this make sense to the character? And like really having to kind of call myself out and, and really thinking about character versus maybe a speaker of the poem. And, and And yeah, so there's these different mechanisms that are just, inherent to that style of writing and and that was kind of tricky to sort of reconcile with of of kind of thinking about like your characters as real beings and thinking like would daniel do that in this situation does that make sense to the core of who he is and and even sort of characters who are not the main characters, but like tertiary characters, you know, like, the char- like Rob's boyfriend, Shane, who we meet in the first half, like thinking like would Shane walk like that or talk like that? Or he kind of has a moment where he says something really catty to another character at a party and thinking like how would he say that? And that has to be said and kind of done in a way that is so different from Daniel, even though Daniel is the one narrating how it took place. And so just thinking of these, yeah, these tools and mechanisms that occur In the novel form, I feel we're very, yeah, unwieldy. But I would have to say poetry. I think is a great jumping off point. I'm very grateful that I, I really honed my craft as a poet, and that really helped me. I think to really think about having each line, or I hope I don't know if I can say that a hundred percent, but really working towards every line serving the story and really thinking as a poet, like really honoring language and word choice. And I think that is something that just poets do so exceptionally. And I'm not saying that I do it exceptionally, but I think that kind of care for word and craft is a really great tool to have in one's belt when transitioning to prose.
0: Well, the book is How We Named the Stars andres and ordrica thank you so much for joining us today
1: thank you so much
0: did i get it right
1: yes you did <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was andres and ordrica author of the novel how we named the stars which was published by tim house marginalia was produced at kmuw wichita and is part of the npr podcast network our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Crowson and Katie Lanning, And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed. Because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being?
1: If you want to do something, then
0: just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to Life Kit from NPR.